It was mentioned previously during the course of our announcements, as well as in other ways of the gratitude and earnestness that we feel in being able to come together this morning. Though it may be so very blustery and rather cold outside, as I heard the responses by many, nonetheless, how thankful we can be for a place of warmth and for a place in which we have a degree of comfort, in which we can consider some teachings that should aid us and help us as we strive to be more righteous and more godly each day of our lives. It would be fair to say, of course, that there's a great deal of excitement that it seems to be found within the atmosphere and in the air this time of year. Our young boys and girls look with such great excitement to Christmas, the gifts which may in fact be theirs, the break they are able to have from school. Perhaps those are rivaling one another in terms of excitement. But also for those of us that are just little older boys and girls, we also have many things for which we can be thankful. And this Christmas season also dwells within us and also provides a number of areas in which we too can think and be so very appreciative and thankful. Might I submit, though, that of course the element that so often is recognized as the basis for this season of the year is supposedly the birth of our Savior. That occasion that's revealed to us in the Bible in which Jesus himself came ultimately to reside in the form of human flesh and was born of Mary. But as those scenes are presented to us, perhaps in the course of a nativity scene, and we've seen many of them over the past few weeks, haven't we? But this morning, I would ask that you think with me about some responses that we find within the pages of the Word of God to the very birth of Jesus. As we look at those responses, we shall find within them ideas that can help us as we strive also to respond to Jesus. Not only His birth, of course, but the entirety of His life and what He has to offer to you and me. To set the stage for that, I have just reminded you of a few things that are probably very familiar to each of us. For in fact, where we shall begin, we will not look carefully at the details of the birth itself. We shall reserve that for the lesson this evening, in fact. But for right now, would you note with me that the time came when Roman law made it such that it was time for a census to be taken. We're aware of a census that's taken here once every ten years, and in fact the constitution of our land demands it. Well, so it was that in the days of the Roman Empire, the time came when the Caesar decreed a census to be made, and each particular person and family was to return unto the city of their family heritage and thus be enrolled or, in fact, participate in the census. Joseph and Mary both were descendants of that very family of David, and Bethlehem was the place to which they were to go in order to enroll in that census. And so it was that in Luke, the second chapter, the first 11 verses, Joseph and Mary proceed to go to Bethlehem there to participate in that census. At the time, however, Mary was great with child. And the time came while they were there that Mary was ready to deliver that little baby boy into this world. We understand that the events surrounding that had many marvelous and eternal consequences but might I suggest that, in fact, Jesus was born on that evening while they were there. That fulfilled the prophecies of the Old Testament that stated He would be born in Bethlehem, Micah 5, verses 1 and 2. And that alone is a tremendous statement of the overruling providence and power of the God of heaven. But might we also notice that at the time Jesus was born... And in the weeks following, there were many responses, and we shall look this morning at four of them. And notice the interesting way in which many responded to the birth of Jesus. 
With that said, let's look at the first of those responses. I would encourage you to read with me in Luke, the second chapter. We'll begin reading in verse number 15. And it came to pass, as the angels were gone away from them into heaven, the shepherds said one to another, Let us go now even unto Bethlehem and see this thing which is come to pass, which the Lord hath made known unto us. And they came with haste and found Mary and Joseph and the babe lying in a manger. And when they had seen it, they made known abroad the, the saying which was told them concerning the child. And all they that heard it wondered at those things which were told them by the shepherds. But Mary kept all these things and pondered them in her heart. And the shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all the things that they had heard and seen, as it was told unto them. The first of the responses we shall consider is that of the shepherds. Isn't it interesting to consider and think about the fact that when in fact Mary brought forth Jesus into the world, there were shepherds abiding in the field watching over their flock by night. How far these were from Jerusalem, we are not told, but it would appear they were reasonably close as that information was relayed to them earlier in Luke, the second chapter. I would quickly point out their initial responses. Verse number 9, And lo, the angel of the Lord came upon them, that's the shepherds, and the glory of the Lord shone round about them, and they were sore afraid. When Mary gave birth to Jesus, these shepherds doing their duty and watching over their flock, a bright light shone around them, the glory of the Lord, if you will, on that occasion, and they were afraid. That fear, though, quickly was met by the statement of great joy and wonder by, those, by the angel itself. Verses number 10 and 11, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good tidings of great joy, which shall be to all people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, which is Christ the Lord. At that point, we can imagine a bit of their fear and anxiety melted away. These shepherds were overwhelmed and overcome with interest to pursue what they'd been told. Thus, you notice the reading we had just read. It says in verse 15, they made a decision to go to Bethlehem to see what it was that this information was that had been revealed, this babe that had been born, this Savior that had now entered the world. Notice with me in verse number 16, it says they came with haste. There was no delay, no procrastination. They didn't put anything off, and yet they proceeded at once to go and see this babe that was born. That alone is an interesting thing when we notice in verse 17 they continued to share what it was that had been told to them. All who in fact had asked, including Mary and Joseph apparently, they told what it was that this angel had said to them. Interestingly, in verse 20, even upon returning to their duty and their job, they glorified and praised God. It's at this point I might ask and encourage each of us to also think about lessons that we might also learn from that very episode. These shepherds made haste to see, the G to see Jesus. It goes without saying that you and I too today still need to make haste to see the Savior. For you see, apart from Him, we have nothing to be offered to us. We should at once, and overcoming all hindrances and obstacles, make our way to see that very Savior. 
we know, of course, the New Testament informs us of that golden pathway that leads to everlasting life. Do you and I, with haste, pursue it as we should? Do we, in fact, lay aside the hindrances and obstacles that Satan may place before us, and much like those shepherds, proceed at once to see the Savior? We might remember that on one occasion, in John the 14th chapter, Jesus very powerfully said to Philip, If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. You and I need not ask to see God. If we've seen Christ, we've seen Him. Do you and I thus in our lives make haste to see Jesus? Are we too quick to procrastinate and say, I'll get to it tomorrow, Lord. Oh, next week will be a better time. Let someone else do that. that that's a job that's not meant for me. Are you sure? Am I sure? Could it very well be that God has tailored that specific act and that work such that you and I are not only able to accomplish it, but we're the perfect ones who need to not only accomplish it, but can see the great work to be brought about therefrom? Several passages that help encourage us to see the haste that we should feel in making sure that we do the bidding of God. And we strive to see Jesus. Remember in Mark 1.37, Lord, all men seek thee. Jesus had had a very busy day. It was such that the very next morning, he rose early, even before it was day, to proceed to a solitary place to pray. And even there, his disciples found him. And when they found him, they said, Lord, all men seek thee. Even early the next day, there were still multitudes desiring his healing services, desiring his preaching capabilities. All men seek thee. I have no doubt that each of us this morning could say, would it not be the case, how much better our world would be if all 6.25 billion people on this planet sought the Savior? Sadly, many choose not to do so. But may you and I be the prime examples of those who do. All men seek thee. May that be the charge of my life and yours. Or consider that text in Luke 19, beginning in verse 1. There was a short man who met great obstacles in terms of seeing Jesus. He was a publican for one thing. They were not most highly noted in terms of those that were godly and pious people. And yet he, with his desire to see Jesus, ran ahead, climbed a sycamore tree and waited. And oh, what a blessing came his way. Jesus, when he arrived at the location where the sycamore tree was, spotted Zacchaeus and pronounced a blessing upon him and even said that he would abide that day in Zacchaeus' house. I suspect that man not only had his life changed that day, but never again would he be the kind of person he formerly was. May I suggest the New Testament says the same is true of you and me. Once we've seen Jesus... Once He's touched our life, never again will we be the same. We become a new creature in Christ. 2 Corinthians 5, verse 17. Perhaps one other text quickly might be remembered. In the 21st verse of James chapter 1, that very famous text in which God speaks there and makes this interesting statement, Wherefore, lay aside all filthiness and superfluity of naughtiness, Receive with meekness the engrafted word which is able to save your souls. May you and I thus hastily receive that engrafted word and seek to see the Savior just like the shepherds did. But that's only one response that we could, of course, consider. May we look at another one also found in the second chapter of Luke. 
This is one that was read in our hearing by Jason a few minutes ago. In verses 25 to 32, we have that interesting scene played out in these words. If I might form some of the background for it, I'd certainly think that that might be best for us. We realize that both Joseph and Mary were of the Jewish nation. They were Jews. And thus they were subject to all of the ordinances and regulations of the law of Moses. And they were desiring, of course, to keep those flawlessly. Interestingly enough, when a lady gave birth to a child under the Mosaic institutions, there were certain things that had to be done. Now in Leviticus chapter 12, these are detailed for us. But when a baby boy was born, things were a little different than if it was a baby girl. If it was a baby boy, the woman, the mother who gave birth, was to be unclean until the time the baby was circumcised on, on the eighth day. And then for 33 days following, she was to continue in her purifying. And at the close of that time, she was to appear at the temple and offer a sacrifice appropriately described for the absolution of that, of that purification. In Luke, the second chapter, we find Joseph and Mary doing that very thing. First, we notice on the eighth day they came for the circumcision of the baby, Jesus. What's more, 33 days later, we find that they again appear at the tabernacle, that is to say, the temple. And upon that appearing, we read the following words. Behold, there was a man, verse, 30, verse 25, in Jerusalem, whose name was Simeon. And the same man was just and devout, waiting for the consolation of Israel, and the Holy Ghost was upon him. One of the first things we might state, there was a man abiding in Jerusalem at this time. His name was Simeon. Interestingly enough, though, he had been revealed something by the very nature of the Holy Spirit. Verse 26, And it was revealed unto him by the Holy Ghost that he should not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. In that day when specific revelations and visions were given, here was a man, a devout man, a pious man, a righteous man, who abiding in Jerusalem, we see that he had been told something by the Holy Spirit. You, Simeon, will not die until you've seen the Lord's anointed. That word Christ translated there in the King James Version means the Messiah of God. God's Messiah will come before you die, and you will see him. No doubt that had filled the heart on many occasions of Simeon, as he so much longed for the very coming and the revelation of God through this Messiah. We know from our study of the New Testament how the Jews so longed to see the coming Jesus, the coming Messiah, his anointed. For they pictured him to be a very grand political leader who would deliver them from Roman oppression. The excitement that filled their heart was truly a great thing. This man Simeon no doubt felt those feelings. And here as he knew that he would not die till he had seen the Lord's anointed. He knew the one who'd been promised for millennia was soon to come. The wait was almost over. And yet on this particular occasion, we notice in verse 27, Simeon was there at the temple when Joseph and Mary brought in the baby Jesus. But have you ever noticed with me what he did to this little baby in verse 28? He took him up in his arms and blessed God and said, Lord, now lettest thou thy servant depart in peace according unto thy word. For mine eyes have seen thy salvation, which thou hast prepared before the face of all people, 
a light to lighten the Gentiles and the glory of thy people Israel. Picture yourself in the place of Joseph and Mary as they were standing there to have this stranger come and take their baby from their arms and over him to pronounce these statements and these words. No wonder Mary was a bit perplexed and confused on occasion. Any mother would be very protective of allowing a little baby to be held and taken by a total stranger. And yet, the wording that's here uttered before us tells us how Simeon responded to the baby. Did you notice with me what he did? Verse number 28, he blessed God. He took the baby and offered blessing unto God on behalf of the baby that he was now holding. But even that isn't all. For in the words that followed, he pronounced in three ways a tremendous character to this baby. First, verses 29 to 31 salvation. Next, verse 31, a light, and finally a glory. Any parent would perhaps bubble over with excitement to hear those kinds of things pronounced over their child. This child will be salvation. This child will be a glory unto the very God of heaven and a light to the very generations about him. We as parents, of course, with great excitement, look upon our children and their dreams and their aspirations as they look to fulfill those dreams in their careers and other aspects of their life. Notice what was said here. Can you and I not say that not much has changed? Jesus is still all of these things. He is still salvation. He is still a light. He is still glory. If we have any doubt to those facts, might we look often into the New Testament and use some of the passages that I've given for your consideration. In Luke 19, verses 9 and 10, that same scene in which Zacchaeus had interaction with Jesus, Jesus said, For the Son of Man has come to seek and save that which was lost. Who is the Son of Man? Christ is. What's He come to do? Seek and save. Is He salvation still? Absolutely. In John 6, verse 35, I am the bread of life. Do we doubt that? We shouldn't. He is the absolute sustenance of all that God has to offer for you and me. Or yet consider another text in John 14, 6. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man cometh unto the Father but by me. Is he still salvation? Absolutely. For any person who would have hope of passing to the august presence of the God of heaven must do so through the Savior. These only whet our appetite for a host of others that may well be stated. I included Isaiah 60 verse 1 in the listing. In the Old Testament, long before Jesus was ever born, the prophet Isaiah had foretold that, Arise, shine, for thy light is come. Who was the fulfillment of that prophecy? Jesus was. That statement was made concerning, of course, Jesus being the light to the Gentiles. And that's exactly what here Simeon said would be the case. Or yet on another occasion in John 8 verse 12, Jesus said, I am the light of the world. He that followeth me shall not walk in darkness, but shall have the light of life. Might I suggest you and I should respond similarly to Jesus as did Simeon. We should bless God on behalf of Him and we should appreciate Him as our salvation, as our light, and as our glory. For after all, the glory that He has to offer 
is expressed in John 12, verse 28 in these words. On that occasion, Jesus made the utterance and the statement that in self He was the glorification of God. And later God admitted that directly in John 17, 1. I might quickly remind us of these things and ask the pointed question, what about you and what about me? Do you and I offer thanks to God for the Christ? Are we thankful that God so loved us and blessed us by sending Him and that we can in fact see Him by virtue of His revelation in the Scriptures? Oh, how we should thank Him for that. But in the third place, later in Luke the second chapter, let's look at another response to Jesus' birth. This time it was a lady named Anna. In verses 36 to 38, these are the blessed statements of the Scriptures. And there was one Anna, a prophetess, the daughter of Phanuel of the tribe of Asher. She was of a great age and had lived with her husband seven years from her virginity. And she was a widow of about fourscore and four years, which departed not from the temple but served God with fastings and prayers night and day. And she coming in that instant gave thanks likewise unto the Lord and spake to him of all them that looked for a redemption in Jerusalem. Anna was an aged widow, some 84 years old. However, she by this point had devoted her life entirely to the worship and the glorification of God. Night and day she dwelled in the area surrounding the temple and participated in the worship and encouragement of, of the God of heaven. To say all of that, though, is to say that something interesting took place. For again, Joseph and Mary brought Jesus. How did Anna respond? Did you note with me the verses and what it details about her? First of all, note with me, she gave thanks. Verses 37 and 38. It says, in that instant gave thanks. That word instant means on that spur of the moment, at that appropriate and proper time, she gave thanks for him. The thanksgiving that one feels in his or her heart concerning the character of Jesus says a great deal about each of us individually. If we meander through life and give little thanks for him, little thanks to him and by virtue of our prayer, it bespeaks the character of the gratitude that we do feel in our heart or the lack thereof. How often did Paul thank God for Jesus and for the salvation offered through him? In fact, did he not urge that upon you and me in Ephesians 5 verse 20? When we should give thanks for all things unto the God and Father through Jesus Christ our Lord. Being thankful through Jesus and appreciating that by virtue of him all spiritual blessings are made available to us. This season of the year when some are thus more apt to think about the birth of Christ, it may be that for much of the rest of the year, attention is not turned too often to his birth and too often to all that his life stood for. I would submit that so far by virtue of these responses, those shepherds made haste to see him. Simeon, of course, made those grand statements about what his life would become. We notice now Anna one more time taking that baby, it would appear, and pronouncing great things over him. Do you and I feel these ways in our heart? We should. We should, in fact, longingly await that time when in heaven we will see him. We should be so excited to think about the salvation and the glory and honor that's offered through him now. And finally, in terms of Anna, 
the nature of the thanksgiving that we can feel because of him. I've listed some other texts for your consideration as well. In John 15, verse 5, a text that was made note of even earlier today in our class period. Without me, ye can do nothing, Jesus said. Should we not then be thankful for him, knowing that without him we're nothing? Or what about another text as is found, for instance, in 2 Corinthians 9, verse 15? Thanks be unto God for his unspeakable gift. I'm sure, like, like myself, you've always been impressed with that word unspeakable. In a very real way, the greatness of Jesus and what he offers to you and me cannot be nicely summed up in any short way. All of eternity hinges on it. Thanks be unto God for his unspeakable gift. No wonder in prayer we so frequently will thank God for Jesus, for the church, for the Bible, for the plan of salvation, for all that he makes available to us. And those are not only good, they're appropriate. And they're perfectly right things to include in prayer. So far these things, though, may lead us to say this. Is it enough to simply mouth a thanksgiving on behalf of Jesus? The New Testament would quickly answer that for us, wouldn't it? All the occasions that we find, that thanksgiving emanates into an obedience in the part of our life. And is that not what we see in those latter references I've listed for your consideration? You see, the ultimate thanksgiving that we offer to God for Christ is seen when we do what Christ said to do. The ultimate thanksgiving is, in fact, expressed when we simply do that which Christ said to do. If you love me. You'll keep my commandments, John fourteen fifteen. You are my friends if you do whatsoever I command you, John fifteen fourteen. Later, we see in the New Testament passages that speak thus of the importance of the assemblies. Forsake not the assembling of ourselves together, as a matter of some is. Thus, if we love the Savior and we're thankful for Him, we will make haste to be in attendance at them if it's possible at all. We also will have an attitude of evangelism. For he said, go into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. If we're thankful for the Savior, we, like Paul, will blazon as much as possible and share that news everywhere we can. It is true, perhaps, in one final text, 2 Peter 3.18, if we love the Savior, we will put to heart that text that says, but grow in grace and in the knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. By far, the greatest thanksgiving thus that we can offer for Jesus is to simply do what he said to do. But maybe in the fourth place, one other response to Jesus. This one is found in the book of Matthew. This one is in Matthew, the second chapter. And this one has to do not with shepherds and not with Anna and not with Simeon, but rather with wise men. I would encourage you to consider with me a few statements out of this somewhat lengthy chapter. We shall not read all of it, but focus our attention on just a few of the references found therein. When Jesus had reached the age of about two, we noticed that there was an interesting scene that played out in Matthew, the second chapter. Wise men who, in fact, followed a star and came from the east and located and found the place where Jesus was. They first had, of course, come to Herod, but then they made their way by his blessing on to find the baby himself. Herod, of course, had a desire for them to come back and tell him so he could also come and worship, or at least that's what he said. We know he really intended to destroy the little baby. 
Thus the wise men by decree from heaven returned a different way and did not go back to Herod. But what did those wise men do? Did you notice some of the statements I've previously made? Let's amplify them by reading some texts in the Bible. Verse, beginning in verse number 11 of Matthew chapter 2. And when they were come into the house, they saw the young child with Mary his mother and fell down and worshipped him. And when they had opened their treasures, they presented unto him gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh. And being warned of God in a dream that they should not return to Herod, they departed into their own country another way. To pause at that point, notice that these wise men who had traveled such a great distance from the east, following that star who had led them directly over the place where Jesus was, these wise men brought precious treasures. Precious treasures. The very word again in verse 11 is when they had opened their treasures. Might we never forget that they didn't simply come and give whatever they could rustle up on the spur of the moment. They had diligently brought the best of which they were capable. Gold, frankincense, and myrrh. Now gold we can appreciate. That very precious metal that even to this, till this day is recognized for its value, its preciousness, and in many instances serves as the basis for all monetary exchange. What about frankincense? I've indicated on the screen for your consideration what frankincense was. Frankincense simply is the incense of Lebanon. Very, very costly and very, very precious in that day. Finally, myrrh is an aromatic resin used for perfume. No matter which of these one considers, one can only be amazed at how that these wise men brought these precious treasures and offered to give them to a baby. Might we not forget, they weren't giving them to a grown king. They weren't giving them to a prince of some territory. They weren't offering them to, in fact, the very Caesar of Rome. They were offering them to a baby, to the very one who, of course, was born king of the Jews. That does lead you and me to ask questions about wise men and what they do even till this day. Is it not still true that wise men still seek Jesus? That wise ladies also still seek Jesus? For after all, where else might we go for the words that lead to eternal life? Peter's famous words in John 6, verses 66 to 69. As that screen closes, some more verses to ask you to ponder with me what we ought to bring Jesus. Sometimes we sing a song, most often right before we partake of the Lord's Supper, that goes in one of its verses as it makes mention of what have we brought him, what hast thou brought me? Jesus does demand we bring him something. What does he want? Does he want a little of my money? Does he want a little of my time? Does he want some of my energy? Or does he want all of the above and then some? Friends, is it not true that the Bible demands that when you and I come to Christ, we believe with all our heart that he's the Christ, the Son of God, Acts eight thirty seven, And in that belief, we relinquish all to him. He asks nothing less than our complete and our full obedience to him. He doesn't want part of us. He wants all of us. Is it not true in Acts 10, verse 36 and 38? He is Lord of all, but that might well be stated this way. If he's not Lord of all, he's not Lord at all. If there's any part of my life I'm unwilling to give him, if there's any dedication I'm unwilling to relinquish, he's not Lord of my life. It's that simple. There's something else that is higher in priority for me than he. 
and I'll lose my soul if that's the case. Our God is a jealous God. He demanded of Israel, Thou shalt have no other gods before me, the first of the Ten Commandments. And Jesus in the New Testament said, Thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, with all thy soul, with all thy mind, and with all thy strength. Mark 12, verse 37. Thus, if he isn't Lord of everything in my life and yours, he isn't Lord of our lives at all. These passages challenge us to think of the following. In Luke 14, verses 26 to 28, he there even made note that we should love him above even our immediate families. Or that text in Luke 18, verse 18, there was a rich young ruler that came to Jesus then and asked, What good thing must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus responded first to keep the commandments. But notice he said, Go sell everything you've got and give it to the poor. Come follow me. That ruler had something higher than Jesus on his mind, for he went away sorrowfully, apparently. Was he willing to make that step Jesus demanded? The Bible leaves us at that point and doesn't give us that answer. We can hope he did. Today, what about your standing in mine? Do we respond to Jesus and his birth the same way that these four have? Perhaps in summary we can review in these words and then the lesson will be yours this morning. First, in terms of the shepherds, they with haste sought to see Jesus. Do you and I with haste seek to see him and understand that which he's revealed? Simeon took that baby in his arms and pronounced upon him the fact he is glory, he is salvation, and he's light. Do you and I still hold him up to that great splendor today? We should, for he is still all of them. Anna, when she thanked God on behalf of him and in that instant prophesied and pronounced his greatness, do we appreciate the glory he brings day by day and moment by moment to us? Finally, these wise men who came and brought him precious treasures, friend, he wants not only those physical things I mentioned earlier, but he wants all that you and I are. Have you brought him that? He will take good care of it. Later, Paul could admit in 2 Timothy 1, verse 12, For the which cause I also suffer these things. Nevertheless, I am not ashamed, for I know whom I have believed, and am persuaded that he is able to keep that which I have committed unto him against that day. Paul had committed unto Jesus his soul, his eternal livelihood, and Paul stated that Christ had taken good care of it. Today, he will take good care of my soul and yours when we commit our soul to his trust and to his keeping. Today, as we think, though, about Christmas and the season that supposedly announces and celebrates his birth, may we not forget that year-round we have the tremendous opportunity to celebrate him each and every occasion, moment by moment, and particularly on the Lord's Day when we surround his table to commemorate his death, to commemorate what he did for us. Today, are you a Christian? Remember, without Christ, you nor I can do anything. You need to be a child of God today. If you've reached that point in life of knowing that there's right and there's wrong, and that you've been guilty of the wrong, you need the forgiveness offered by Jesus. Only His blood can offer that. And today, if we can be of assistance to you in that response, we would be honored, and you would be a Christian. If you need to come back to your first love, though, do not delay. Just like those shepherds make haste, make things right today while you have time while you have opportunity. If either of these things would be the need in your life, will you not let that be known even now while together we stand and while we sing?